following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Hi friends, good morning. Grab your Bibles, please. If you're already back at your seat, open them to the book of Galatians. We are beginning a new uh, study of Paul's letter to the Galatians. There is a sermon schedule card um, out there on the music stand where you grab the worship gods on the way in. Um, that will get us to the end of November, which is the, really the beginning of Advent for us. And we may take a break over the Advent season to study um, the Advent specifically. Or we may continue in Galatians, that's to be determined. But the schedule, Lord willing, is in place through, uh, through that time. So if you'd like one, grab one, keep that in your Bible. And uh, encourage you to read ahead for the week. Study the passage a little bit on your own. If you have certain questions, write those down. And uh, hopefully if the sermon doesn't address that, we can have those kind of discussions together in our community groups or offline. Um, but that's a, that's a resource for you that you can pray through and read through the, the scriptures of the coming week. Um, and even at the very least, pray for me as I study that passage um, or, or what a Jake or John preaches that Sunday. So let's, uh, let's begin by praying together and then we'll, we'll read verses 1 through 5. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and the opportunity to study, to read, to listen, to serve, to be ministered to, and to minister to others. Lord, we ask for your blessing this morning through the preaching of your word, that our ears would be open and attentive to hear and receive the truth presented within it, and our hearts to be soft and open to the correction and to the encouragement that it offers. Lord, we pray that we would be mindful of our need of obedience to your word and our need to proclaim and believe your word. Above all, Lord, we ask that we would see clearly the beauty and the worth and the, the, the praiseworthiness of Christ in the gospel through this letter over the next several months. God, would you glorify yourself now. We pray for those who are sick and cannot come, that you would heal them, encourage them, and restore them to health. We pray for those who are in disobedience, who are in rebellion against you, your word, hiding themselves from the accountability of others, or afraid, Lord, of your... Of your uh, wrath, Lord, against them? Would you remind them, Lord, that all those who come to you in repentance and humility would be received and loved? And we ask, God, that you would even now encourage and provoke them with your mercy. And we ask, Father, that you would help us to be bold and courageous for the sake of the gospel, not being man-pleasers or to in line or in step with a culture that seeks to do us harm or to defame your name. 
but walk boldly and courageously for the gospel in a manner worthy of our calling. The gospel of your son Jesus, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Well, the book of Galatians is an early book of the New Testament, perhaps one of the earliest written epistles, certainly that of Paul. Perhaps even as early as A.D. 55, which would be perhaps sometime before the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. And so the first half of the book of Acts would really be largely relevant to Paul's life at this point. And the events that take place after that event would not have been relevant to the Galatians at that moment. The point in that this is an early book means that Paul is introducing a theological concept in a broader theological category that he, for the rest of his ministry, his writing ministry, specifically to the Corinthians, to the Romans, and to others, that he will be developing in greater detail along the way. So we can look rightly, I think, at the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatian church, as the, the earliest conveyance or the earliest communication of what we would typically call Pauline theology, a strong emphasis on the gospel that teaches that we are saved not by works, but by faith, that we are justified, I mean, declared righteous, made righteous with God by faith and not by works. And Paul's attitude about faith and his, his outlook and attitude about the law, which at one point in his life he was earnestly devoted to, is laid out in framework form in Galatians and then in the rest of his ministry and his writings, again, specifically in Romans we see that he builds upon this as he teaches the church about how we should approach God's word, his law, his promises, and how the gospel changes everything in our life. So Galatians being an early book is really pivotal to our understanding of justification because it lays for us the groundwork of what Paul teaches about our faith and salvation. Quick background about Galatians, just so we have some context for his writing and for our study of it. There was at one point some opponents that would come in, sneak into the church, that would begin to teach opposite or in opposition to what Paul himself had taught. In fact, they would teach not only the opposite of what Paul would teach, but undermine Paul's credentials and his authority as an apostle. Paul helped found the church of Galatians. Early on in his ministry, in his first ministry, uh, a missionary journey, and then not soon after was he hearing reports as he was continuing on that other false teachers were teaching a false gospel. And that was not isolated to Galatians only, but to many other places. Even in Jerusalem, there was enough of an issue with these individuals, these legalists or these Judaizers as they're called, who are undermining Paul's teaching in the gospel itself and attacking Paul and the other apostles themselves, which required an answer. They were leading God's people astray. The church that Paul had helped establish in Galatia was needing to be reminded of the gospel that Paul had taught to them, to be encouraged not to stray from it, and at times to be rebuked in their willingness to listen to false teachers instead of reminding it and remaining faithful to the gospel itself. So Paul and the other apostles hearing about these opponents attacking and undermining the gospel and undermining Paul's credentials to preach the gospel in the first place, Paul 
sought it fit, perhaps even by the encouragement of the other apostles in Jerusalem, to write this letter to the Galatians to keep them from straying any further into error. And then by straying, incur God's wrath and judgment. He does this through uh, many themes in many ways, but primarily here he's wanting to speak about the authority of Christ over all things, particularly over all men, not just these false teachers, but even Paul and the other apostles themselves who would receive their charge from Christ. And therefore, as the divine Son of God, who has all authority over all things, it is demanded of us to render obedience and faithfulness and allegiance to Him in all things. And that's the main idea this morning. As we study the first five verses and seek an overview of the book of Galatians, we know that it is Christ's authority as the divine Son of God which demands our obedience, faithfulness, and allegiance as Christians and as the church which he purchased with this blood. So let's read the first five verses of the book of Galatians. It begins, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Paul is one of my favorite authors, certainly of the New Testament, perhaps of all the Bible, because Paul has a way with words. He's a wordsmith. He doesn't waste words. He's very intentional with his words. He's well-educated. He thinks deeply, but he communicates concisely, which is a rare gift and trait among many teachers of God's Word. So what Paul can do is take a deep truth, like the Gospel. He can make known the mysteries that were hidden for ages and is now being revealed to the prophets and the apostles. And he can make it clear to both Jews and Gentiles alike to the most educated and the elite of society and to the most uneducated, the outcasts or the maligned of society. Paul has a special gift to teach and bring the gospel to the world as he knows it. He has been equipped with great abilities. This, of course, is God's gifting and God's doing. But in God's providence, he has raised up this man, Paul, to be a wordsmith a careful teacher and expositor of the scriptures. And so when you read the letters that we have for us, preserved by God's mercy and grace by Paul, the introductions themselves are not mere formalities to get to the meat of the letter, but are intensely important, often are the keys to unlock the rest of the book. If you study carefully some of the opening introductions, the greetings, which seem more or less benign, Hey, it's Paul. I'm an apostle to this church. Hope you're doing well. I'd like to get to the meat. No, if you study this work in Galatians, Romans, elsewhere, he, he often packs into just a few short sentences, even sometimes one long run-on sentence, so much theology and so much thematic interest that he plans to unpack in the rest of his letters that a careful student of the Bible would certainly be amazed at God's raising up of such a competent and capable teacher. We should pray for more teachers who can exposit God's word 
like Paul. Well, this book is no different. Just in these first five verses that we do see the formal greeting of Paul to the Galatians and a benediction or a welcome and a doxology to the Lord, packed within this, weaved within this introduction, is the very theme of the book of Galatians. In fact, if, we, if we'd like, we can discern a convenient framework in these first five verses that map well into the rest of the book. Let's read when it says in verse 1 and 2, as he introduces himself, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. These first two verses, of course, introduce Paul and his other writers or uh, those with him, those whom we do not know, and to whom he's writing, the churches of Galatia. Again, it's not exactly sure who these individuals are or even, debatably, what part of the province, the larger portion of the Roman Empire Galatia really served. But the academic interests aside, we do see that Paul here is immediately introducing a core theme and tenet of the book of Galatians. He says, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ, God the Father, who raised him from the dead. This is the source of his apostleship, his calling as an apostle to bring to the Gentiles the gospel comes not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Well, the first chapter and a half of the book of Galatians really has to do with that theme itself. We can call this part one, history, where Paul outlines how he was called as an apostle. The readers would be reminded of the story of how Paul himself was saved on the road to Damascus, which you can read about in Acts chapter 9. He gives a history of his own calling and his own upbringing as an apostle. How he for three years spent time in Arabia before even coming to Jerusalem. And then for 14 years laboring in the mission field before again coming back to Jerusalem and working through difficulties with the opponents and working with the Jerusalem church. Verses 3 in the first part of verse 4 have to do with the second part of our letter, which is not so much history now, but theology. In chapters 2 through 4, Paul is laying out the theology that is contained in the book of Galatians, namely justification by faith and our attitude towards the law and the gospel, how the two relate to one another. And then in the second half of verse 4, According to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Is this introduction into how God's glory and His will supersede all of our life as Christians, which we could call part three, ethics. So just in the first five verses, remember the earliest writings here had no verses or chapter numbers. But in Paul's, I think, wisdom and under the inspiration of the Spirit, he was led to pen this introduction with maps rather conveniently under these three parts. History, theology, and ethics. So in other words, we can summarize the letter to the Galatians like this. Paul's apostolic calling, justification in the law, and the Christian life. Those are the three big headings under history, theology, and ethics. Paul's apostolic calling, justification in the law, and the Christian life. 
Now, let's weave that into a single sentence as an overview and a summary for the entire book. I believe it's this. Paul was uniquely and sovereignly called by the risen Lord to preach the gospel of God's justifying grace through Christ in order that all of God's people can walk in freedom and truth. That, I think, is the biggest, largest overview idea of the book of Galatians. I'll do my best to repeat that throughout our study. Again, Paul was uniquely and sovereignly called by the risen Lord to preach the gospel of God's justifying grace through Christ in order that all of God's people can walk in freedom and in truth. That, I believe, is the message of Galatians. Therefore, Galatians, as a letter, is a snapshot of the entirety of the gospel. See, the gospel is not just about God's choosing or His election. And the gospel is not just about the death of Jesus. It's not even just about His resurrection. And it's not simply about living a faithful life, obedient to the Scriptures or to the leading, the calling of God. While we must be very careful not to confuse the fruit of the gospel with the gospel itself, it seems to me that Paul's preaching of the gospel here takes all of these points together and arranges them and presents them as a whole. So in Pauline theology, one thing leads to another. You can't separate them from one another. One cannot be ignored to the neglect of another. One cannot be emphasized to the neglect of the other. All of these ideas about God's calling and choosing, about His saving and justifying work through Christ, His death and resurrection, His ascension, the sending of the Spirit, the empowering by that Spirit of believers to walk in the faithfulness and the obedience of His Word, the righteousness which comes from faith. All of this is contained in what Paul presents as the gospel. We cannot merely reduce the gospel to a set of propositions. While it is, at its very core, a message about what God has done for us in Christ, when Paul speaks of the gospel, he speaks of these together. God's calling and choosing of a people according to His own pleasure and will. The sending of His Son. His death and His resurrection. The people chosen by God Believing by faith and not by works. And the transformation of their life to live obediently in light of the gospel is all under the large umbrella of the gospel itself. And so the question then I seek to to answer and put before you is how does our introductory passage here in verses 1 through 5 help us see Paul's bigger aim for the letter in those three major points? History, ethics, or theology or Paul's apostolic calling, justification in the Christian life. What I want to do to answer that question is to look closely in these first five verses and notice who stands at the center of each statement that references references these major themes. He says that he was called not from men, verse 1, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. In verse 3, grace to you and peace from whom? God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, who gave himself, that is Christ, for our sins, according to the will of God, our God and Father. So who stands at the center of Paul's work? It is Christ, and it is the Father. As he writes this letter, as he intends to teach and explain the gospel, 
He does so not by centering it around himself or making it even about his opponents, but he makes it clearly and squarely about the Father and the Son. And while the Spirit is not explicitly mentioned here in these passages, very quickly the Spirit will be mentioned and expounded upon as a key to our living righteously and faithfully before God. So Jesus Christ and God the Father stand at the center of Paul's explanation of the gospel. In fact, in each case, when one is mentioned, so is the other. They're not separated from one another. Again, Paul, under the inspiration of the scriptures, but in his keen insight and understanding to the mystery that has now been revealed to him, links these two together. And it does this more than just as a pious window dressing. He's not simply trying to sound Christian by saying Jesus Christ and the Father, or our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not simply dressing it up theologically so that he can sound better than he is. And he's certainly not accidentally stumbling upon a theological truth. Paul is no accidental theologian. Paul is very deliberately asserting the superiority and the authority of Christ above all other earthly powers and authorities. That is what Paul is very deliberately doing, even above his own authority as an apostle and above that of the other apostles even, Peter or James or John, these so-called pillars of the church. All of their authority must necessarily come from Christ if it is to be received and obeyed by the Galatians. Paul is addressing ultimate authority beyond his own or others, certainly well beyond those of his opponents or contractors. And how does he do this? Again, look closely at the text and notice the prepositions that are used by Paul to describe God's work in his life and in their life. These prepositions will help us come to understand this God or the gospel. And of course, maps quite nicely onto the larger threefold schema of the letter that we already mentioned, the history, theology, and ethics. Notice the, the prepositions of through in verse 1. Paul is an apostle not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And in verse 3, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ from here. And in verse 4, that who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. These prepositions will serve to highlight Christ's authority, Christ's power, and Christ's glory as he makes the point clearly to the Galatians that Christ is above all. So we'll look at each one in turn. Christ's authority, Christ's power, and Christ's glory through the work of of Paul's letter to the Galatians. Notice then first Christ's authority there in verse 1. The preposition is through, that he was called as an apostle not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. It is from or through Jesus Christ that Paul receives his calling as an apostle. And he makes very clear to say it's not from men nor through men. That, but Paul didn't make this up in himself, nor did he receive it from the other apostles or steal it from any other religion and make it his own, but he received it directly from or through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. The point here is that Jesus is presented as the source of Paul's calling. 
the basis upon which he understands himself to be an apostle, one sent by Christ to do the work of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. It is through Jesus Christ. But notice Jesus Christ is linked with God the Father. This preposition here, through, means that Jesus Christ is the means by which Paul's calling of apostle comes into reality, but also the linking with Christ as the Son and God as the Father really stands to, to buttress the truth that Jesus is equal with the Father, that there is a unity that the Son has with the Father. The term here, God the Father, is in reference to Christ, who is His Son. It is well known that it is established in Paul's writings and in the Gospels themselves and Jesus' own command and teaching that He is on the same footing with the Father. They are, ontologically speaking, no different. They are one in essence. They are the same. Though they are distinct in their personhood, as we understand them as Father and Son and Spirit, they share one divine essence. And because of this, it is right to call Jesus God. Not an elevated human, not a special creation of the Father, but one with the Father. The Apostle John reminds us of this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and what? The Word was God. John makes a very careful theological calculation to remind his readers that Jesus, the Word, is God. And yet, in his very same statement, recognizes that there is some distinction between the Word who is God from the Word, from the God who that Word was with in the beginning. Distinct in personhood, yet one in essence. Divine, yet in personhood distinct. Now, I want to be careful not to read the theological Trinitarian debates of the 2nd and 3rd century and so on back into the text here. I don't think Paul is getting too far ahead of himself. But very clearly, he's intending to show that there is a unity of the Son with the Father and that the authority which comes from God as the creator of all things is the same that comes from Christ. He stands to show that because Christ has a unity as the Son with the Father, that there is then no distinction of the calling that Paul receives as an apostle than if God himself would have directly called. When Jesus interrupts Paul's persecution of the church, knocks him down off his horse, and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is as if he is called by the Lord himself. There is no distinction of calling. There is no delineation of authority. Jesus commands. Jesus is to be obeyed. He himself has the authority to do so. This isn't Paul's idea. Jesus himself says it at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Right before he goes and gives the great commission to the church to go into all nations and baptize, making disciples. What does he say? He says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority has been given to me. Therefore go. So who has the authority? God, the Father, or the Son? Yes. Because they share a distinct unity of essence, and because the Father has given all authority to His Son, the calling and the authority of Christ stands above all because He is God. 
But friends, you and I, we have an authority problem. Not simply as a nation, which is probably true. Not as a culture, which is definitely true. And not even as a generation, as millennials is certainly true. But as a human race, we have intrinsically, deep within our hearts, an authority problem. We hate authority. Now certainly when authority serves our ends, we're happy to go along with it. But the moment we feel pressed or under pressure, the moment the authority asks us to do something that we don't like, or even that is genuinely sinful and unjust, we want to rebel against that authority. This is the very first chapters of the Bible. Rebellion against the authority of God. And if man who was made perfect would find it in himself a reason enough to rebel against a perfect authority, how much easier would it be us who are fallen to rebel against all sorts of authority which are not perfect? There is an authority problem deep within each of our hearts. And so it is incumbent upon us, necessary, that we recognize and really wrestle with what it means for Christ to have ultimate authority. It's not a comfortable idea. It's one that we can acknowledge and assent to intellectually. Yes, Christ got authority, got it. But realistically, practically in our lives, how do we wrestle with the fact that Christ can tell us to do and command us to do anything and everything that He desires and we must obey? There's an authority problem in our hearts. And too often, Christ is simply just another authority in our lives. One of many which we know we ought to obey, it's right, and maybe we try to obey a little more than others, but still is all too easily ignored. But friends, is Christ one with the Father? Does he or does he not possess all authority in heaven and earth? Has he not created the world? Is it not for him that you have your existence? Is it not to him which you owe your redemption? Is it not him who is your Lord and Master as his disciple? Is it not Him who has sent to you His Holy Spirit? Is it not Him who gives us breath and life and movement each day? Is it not Him who encourages us with His Word and teaching? Is it not Him who leads us on the path of righteousness, even provides the righteousness of very self? Why then do we treat Him as a lesser authority than His very nature rightly demands? This is not easily grasped or fully understood. But Paul here just simply drops this truth. Because Christ is one with the Father, He has ultimate authority. Therefore, His calling as an apostle doesn't rest on the calling of men. It doesn't rest on the other apostles' approval of Him. It doesn't rest on whether the Galatians or any other church affirm Him or welcome Him. It rests only on the calling of Christ, who is king above all. He has all authority in heaven and earth. And so when he commands Paul's life to be used and spent for the sake of the gospel to the Gentiles, Paul will spend his life for the gospel for the sake of the Gentiles. Indeed, this is what Paul will do to his very death. The next preposition there then is in verse 3. Preposition is the Greek apo, which is the word from here in our text. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, notice God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are linked together. That is just as verse 1 conveys the unity 
and the co-essence of divinity, here we see that there is an equality in the deity of both persons. Not only does Christ have all authority, but as God, he has all power. He is able to give what alone God can give. Though he has all authority, he possesses as well all power. One commentator put it like this, the true identity of Christ is seen in the fact that he is associated indissolubly with the Father in all the mighty acts of salvation. That is, you cannot separate the Son from the Father in how God acts in creation for your salvation. Or as Martin Luther, Galatians' most famous commentator would put it, the true identity of Christ is proved by this conclusion. Paul attributes to him, Christ, the ability to grant the very same thing that the Father does. Grace, peace of conscience, the forgiveness of sins, life, and victory over sin, death, the devil, and hell. This would be illegitimate, in fact, sacrilegious even, if Christ were not true God. For no one grants peace unless he himself has it in his hands. Again, what Paul so skillfully does is weave in to such a simple statement, a greeting and a welcome even to the churches of Galatia, this profound truth that Christ possesses all power. Authority and power are in his hands. And so the power Christ possesses then is the power to save. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one, because he is one with the Father, from whom the power to save, to grant peace, and graciously give all things, comes from him as the Lord above all. He grants the power to save, to graciously impart and establish peace with God. Friends, where our enmity once existed. Because we have rebelled against God, or our Father has rebelled against God, in the garden we have enmity, not peace, with Him. But Christ has come and grants us peace, and He alone has the power to do so because of who He is. How is this achieved? He says again in verse 3 and 4, that Christ gave himself for our sins. This, this idea of literally being given on behalf of our sins. It is Christ who becomes a sin, it is said, though he did not sin himself. Later in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Paul writes that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So this idea where Christ gives himself for our sins is that he literally takes on the sinfulness of our sins. He becomes sin. He is cursed for us so that we would be rescued. This is how that's achieved. The power to save comes from the authority of Christ who gives himself on behalf of our sins. It says then that he rescues us from the present evil age. That is, he does this so that we would be redeemed and restored from the broken, dark age which we now are under. Sin which reeks through our body, it ravages through the world, is redeemed because Christ is plunged into such sin who takes on the flesh of our flesh and the bone of our bone, is cursed and becomes our sin so that we would be rescued from such evil age. 
He plunges himself into the darkness that he might bring us to the light. And in this, there is a severing of the old from the new. This present evil age is the age of darkness, of sin and rebellion, which reigns unencumbered in the human heart. But when Christ comes and takes on the form of a human, and when he dies the death he dies, and he was resurrected, what he has done is not only accomplish for us our salvation and justification, but put an end to the reign of sin. This is a small but important part in what God has been doing through all of history. There is an epoch of time measured before Christ where sin reigned throughout the world, where Jesus himself puts an end to. This new age is the age which we now live in, or rather, the one that we are living as God ushers in in his own timing. We are, in fact, in the now and the not yet. We experience the blessings and the glimpses of that coming age no longer fully with both feet in this present age. Yet the age to come is not fully in reality or consummated. And so we remain now as ever faithful in the balance of the now and the not yet as Christ in his perfect timing comes to bring an end to all evil and sin. So there's a severing of the old from the new. And this is a theme concerning the law and the gospel that will run throughout the letter here of Galatians. And Paul's going to take this up later in greater fashion in the book of Romans. But it's not just the law, but the entire age itself, which is passing away and will be replaced completely by the one to come. And so while at present we live in the now and the not yet, we do so in the reality that Christ has redeemed us or rescued us from this present evil age. Meaning that evil and sin do not reign unencumbered or unhindered in our hearts. But the rule and reign of Christ is above all. This takes a tremendous amount of power. It makes power to be redeemed. And Christ alone possesses it. The power to save, to rescue, the power to be risen from the dead, the power to sit at the right hand of God, to wield that authority is in Christ's hands alone. He alone can grant peace. He alone dispenses grace. So Paul says not only is Christ authority, ultimate authority, but also has ultimate power. This leads to Christ's ultimate glory. He says in the bottom part of verse 4 that all of this was according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What does Paul mean here? That the will and the purpose of God the Father was to redeem a people for his own glory. He created and redeems us so that he would receive all glory and honor and dominion above all. And yet it is Christ who is put forward by the Father to receive such glory. Though here Paul mentions that it was according to the will of God our Father to whom glory be forever and ever. Paul also recognizes that it is God the Father who puts forward Jesus as the means by which that was accomplished and the object of our worship itself. The rest of the Galatians will unpack this. But this is the simple truth, that in the death and resurrection of Christ, the glory of the Father is the glory of the Son. Just as you cannot separate the Father from the Son, since they are one in unity and essence, you cannot separate the glory from one and the other. Again, the Apostle John, chapter 13, verses 31 to 32, says it this way. Jesus 
records that when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified. He's speaking here of the time of his death. Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. In Jesus' death, God is glorified. And in glorifying himself through the death of Jesus, it is Jesus himself which is glorified through God. God is putting forth Jesus as the object of the worth and the worship of his people. In John chapter 14 and 15 and 16, the, the promised spirit, Jesus says, will come and also glorify the Son by teaching us and reminding us of what he says. And so here Christ is solidified as the object of our worship because he alone is worthy of our praise. He alone is worthy of our glory for who he is as one with the Father and for what he's done, namely having given himself for our redemption and to redeem us from the present evil age. And so we say with Paul that we should render all glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul's simple introduction is not so simple after all. Here we display Christ's ultimate authority. Here we see Christ's ultimate power. And there in verse 5, more than just a simple doxology, Christ's ultimate glory as the object of our worship. The authority, the power, and the glory conveniently corresponds to what we pray each Sunday in the Lord's Prayer. Though likely not in the original text, we pray it because it's still right. To Him be all power, the kingdom, power, and glory forever. Amen. This is Christ. Authority, power, and glory, all honor, dominion, name above every name. This is Christ. Three exhortations to give to you, and then we'll end. First, remind yourself that there is no other God like ours. The God presented by the false teachers and those who would teach a false gospel and by any other religion cannot hold a candle to the Lord who is portrayed in the scriptures. This God is supremely powerful. He is not only personable, but he comes to his people and uses power for their good and for his glory. There is no other God like ours who yields such authority with perfection and righteousness. The gods of the Greek myths are often jealous and prone to fits of wrath. They're unpredictable. In fact, they have more flaws often than their human counterparts. The gods of other religions are either too distant to be known or too abstract to be a reality. But there is no other God like ours who possesses all authority and power and to whom belong all glory because there is none like him. We worship him. But secondly, consider that the authority and the power of God are presented as qualities that secures your salvation, that rescues you. That's the whole point in Paul's bringing about of this authority and power. It's not to browbeat you or to to, to Bible thump you about the ability of God to smash you into the ground for your disobedience. Though we would do well from time to time to remember God's authority and power in such a way. 
Now, the exercise of his authority and power is an exercise of his love. That's important. In fact, that is what the gospel demonstrates, that all the authority and the power and the justice of God against sin and sinners like us is actually a demonstration of his great love. The cross is both simultaneously an act of God's justice and wrath against sin and his love and heart towards sinners. Indeed, there is no other God like ours. So consider that these qualities are those same which secure our salvation and rescue, and therefore we must worship God as he does in verse 5. We must sing and praise and pray and speak of and proclaim the glory of God forever and ever. He does not beat us into the ground for our disobedience. He does not use the scriptures to condemn us. But as adopted sons and daughters of the Lord, His authority and power are there to encourage, to exhort, and to rescue us. Lastly, friends, most practically, I think, seek to elevate the authority of Christ in your, in your heart and over your life. Seek to elevate the authority of Christ in your heart and over your life. If that authority problem is indeed true, which the scriptures teach us that it is, we must seek and strive to elevate the authority of Christ practically over our lives. He must rule and reign chiefly in our hearts, and our lives must look like a life of submission and discipleship, of authority and submission to Him. We can do this for three reasons. First, because it will keep you close to the gospel and far from error. That was part of the Galatians' problems. Because the authority of Christ was not first and preeminently in their hearts and minds, and He did not rule over their lives in such a way, that they were easily swayed from the truth of the gospel. They easily abandoned that teaching of, of Paul, the gospel itself, for another false gospel that taught the authority of the law above Christ or the authority of man above Paul and Jesus. But if you elevate the authority of Christ and therefore his word and his commands, his authority over your life will keep you close to the gospel itself and far from error. Therefore, you must know practically the gospel well. You need to understand the gospel, not only in its prepositional form, but also all that it means and has accomplished for you. You need to be able to teach it to your children, to explain it to unbelievers, to give considerable defense of it, to recite it. And I've sat with many of you through your membership interviews. And you know, one of the questions we ask is, could you please explain the gospel? Not all of you do it well. Now, this doesn't mean you're not saved, but it means that if someone's life hung in the balance of your articulation of the saving work of Jesus on his death and resurrection, what might they walk away with? A picture of the blessing of following Jesus and going to church? the transformation of your bank account over one thing or another. The gospel can and does help in many felt needs of our lives, but at the end of the day, the gospel is so much more than just what God will do 
if you promise to believe in him, but rather what God has done and all that he is continuing to do in the redeeming, transforming work of Jesus. Know the gospel well. If you feel like you do not have a grasp on the gospel, please see myself or John or Jake. We have numerous resources and time to give to you in the explanation of the gospel. It is what we would love to do. But know the gospel well. Notice that it is the Galatians themselves which are charged to discern the false teachers. He doesn't write to the false teachers. He doesn't write to the leaders of the church. He writes to the church themselves and says, you should have known better. You should know the gospel so that you could stray from the error and stay close to the truth. So friends, when you elevate the authority of Christ, you also elevate his teaching and commandments and it means you stick close to his word. You know the gospel. You believe it, you teach it, you know it, you develop an understanding of it, you articulate it, and therefore you stay close to it. Elevating the authority of Christ over your heart and life also means that it will keep you free from the commandments of men. This is intensely important for the Christian life. We're not simply speaking here of your ability to share the gospel, but to live out the gospel well. It will keep you free from the commandments of men, from bowing down to the whims and the fancies of other people, even other pastors or other godly people who seek to bind you with laws, intentionally or unintentionally. From homeschool moms to government contractors, the gospel will free you to live radically ordinary lives for his glory. It means that you don't have to bow to the commandments of men when it comes to what curriculum you must teach in your home or to how often you must pray a certain amount of times a day, what books you should read, or what songs you should sing. There's so much freedom in Christ to live, and there is no one man on this earth who can tell you that there is one way to do any one of these God-given gifts. It is the gospel that grants you the freedom. Now, there are plenty of limitations that comes with the gospel, and there are many more times to talk about that. But if you elevate the authority of Christ, and therefore the gospel in your life, you will be free from bowing to the commandments of men. And lastly, the authority of Christ over your heart and life will keep you until the Lord returns. Not only will you not stray from error, stray from the truth into error, or bow to the commandments of men, but you will be kept by Christ faithful until he, t- until he comes again. This is the whole promise of the gospel that because you are redeemed and rescued from the present evil age, that there is an age that is coming. There is an age that you can look forward to, and the gospel keeps you faithful to that very day. This should be the hope of all Christians, to one day see the Lord's return, establishing His kingdom in the fullness of His power, in the fullness of His authority, in the radiance of the fullness of His glory, which we will behold not as in a mirror dimly, but in the reality of face-to-face with Christ. That's the day we long for. And faithfulness to the gospel will mean we will see that day. So, friends, do you long to see the day of the Lord's return? Then elevate the authority of Christ in your heart and life by knowing and studying the gospel, by refusing to bow to the commandments of men, and to be faithful in all things, aligning yourself with Christ until he comes. The Lord will reward you for this. And it is the gospel and the authority of Christ which is the basis and the guarantee of that truth. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to do these very things. 
to elevate the authority of your son Jesus over our lives because we often submit to the wrong authority, whether it's the pressure of others, the commandments of men, the, the high and mighty Christians we long to impress, or the family members that look down on us because of our faith. There's many authorities in our life we choose to listen to, and often we fail to listen to yours. Forgive us, God, but help us to elevate the authority of Christ over our lives so that we would not stray into error, but remain close to the truth, that we would not bow down to the commandments, the pressures, and the fancies of men, that we would not be caught up in the traditions and the inventions of men, but hold fast to your word. And above all, Lord, that as Christ is elevated in all authority and power over our life as king, we would be held faithful until the day he returns or you call us home. Lord, we do, we need your help because we often rebel against good authority. But you have sent your spirit, Lord, to teach us and to grow us in this humility required for such a thing. We love you, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All sermons Let's are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. We were dead in our path. We were sinful sons of wrath. Following a crooked road, we were lost and wandering souls. We couldn't choose righteousness. We couldn't save us.